The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. Well, transitions are often difficult in any circumstance, and yet we face them all the time. Uh, we have now been almost in this whole COVID-19 thing for two years, and we've had so many transitions that have followed. Uh, if you uh, have been or are a parent, uh, there are transitions all the time. And Julie noticed, uh, Julie and I noticed that very quickly with every child that we added on. You add on a second, and it's a little bit different because then you have man-to-man coverage. But then when the third comes, then you're sort of in zone defense. And when the fourth comes, it's, it's uh, you know, just whatever you can do to get by. And so there's, uh, there's challenges and changes that, that come. Uh, children are faced with transition all the time. Uh, here in Mora, uh, sixth graders will go into to junior high. Junior high will end up going into high school. High schoolers then will go into college or career mode. Uh, one day, uh, hopefully, uh, maybe for most of us, marriage will be uh, a big transition that, that we will face, and we'll see what uh, changes that, that brings, uh, whether we're ready for them or not. Uh, in the world of sports, there's constant transition. People get hurt. People get traded. Uh, the Vikings are finally and thankfully in a huge transition right now with firing their GM and their coach, getting a couple new guys in here in the next couple weeks, and it's a massive change for the for the culture, the personnel, and the strategy uh, of the team. Um, and I, I, I really want to throw out a Packers punch right now, but I, I just don't, don't find it in me right now. But I, I just wonder what it feels like to be a Viking fan for a day. Um, and so that was a great day yesterday. But uh, um, hopefully these guys can bring the Super Bowl that we've been waiting for for 62 years. And transition also happens politically as well. Uh, as current citizens of the United States, we have not yet experienced the upheaval of uh, a complete government change uh, and transition. And there are some countries that deal with that all the time, whether it's a coup or whether it is just uh, a, a democratically elected change in government. There are some folks around the world that are just used to change all the time. Uh, and when it comes to such large-scale transitions, whether it be in uh, even governmental structures or whether it be even in the smallest of churches, the most important part of transition is leadership. Leadership will either make or break an organization, a country, a business, whatever it is. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a family of three or a Fortune 500 company. And this morning, we are going to start a new message through the book of First Samuel. And the book of First Samuel can be summarized in one sentence uh, by saying that it is a book of transition for the people of God. It's a book of transition. They were in the midst of a national crisis. And in this national crisis, there is a leadership vacuum. In our time together, we're going to take a bird's eye view of the entire book in order to get this big picture understanding of not only the events that happened, but what they mean for us today and how we are to live for God's glory and for his goodness today. It's not just a historical account, uh, but it is to help display the beauty of God's cosmic kingship over all things. Um, and it is going to be shown in three ways uh, of, of leadership. 
One being very tragic and the other two being more so what we ought to strive for. So let's take a moment and, and, uh, and uh, pray and then we will get into this marvelous book. I think I already prayed, but it's good to pray again. Father, we ask that you would take this word, uh, these words that I prepared, and would you use them to help uh, shape our faith, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. All right, so when we look at 1 Samuel and the transitions that, that the Israelites were facing, we find three, day, three ways to have a rock-solid faith in very, very confusing times. Each of these three is bound up in three characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. So we're going to look at all three of those briefly today. The first thing that we look at is the, the person of, of Samuel. And the thing we should take away from that is that we need to fuel our faith with obedience. Fuel our faith with obedience. Uh, in order to get at what the life of Samuel means for us, we, we really need to place our lives and ourselves into the world that Samuel was born uh, into as well. And so in order to do that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it gives us the, the narrative of uh, the creation of the universe. It is in this narrative that uh, we were first introduced to God's power and his glory, making all things uh, by the word of his mouth and making his chief uh, his chief creation of being humanity in his own image. Uh, we see his creativity, his care, and his sovereign reign in this creation. He can do what he wants. He is, he is over all things, and all things have their purpose and meaning in the one in whom their lives are owed to. Uh, when all of creation was made in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says that God saw all that he had made. And behold, he saw that it was very good. And it didn't last very long, however. Adam and Eve uh, was placed in, the, in God's very perfect world, uh, yet they rejected God's rule and his reign and did precisely what he told them not to do, which was to take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we don't know what kind of fruit it was. Some people think it was an apple. I guess it's not this, Mike, Dave. I guess the whole system will, will be overturned, yeah. I like to think of the fruit as a grapefruit because... I mean, come on, how much worse does it get than a grapefruit, right? Um, so who knows what it, what it was. But they took of this fruit and they ate and it created a separation between him and uh, God and humanity. And their act of disobedience then created this sinful wedge between all people that would come from Adam uh, and Eve and would, uh, would come into, uh, into being and be passed down to every human being. And the effects are profoundly found very quickly. Their marriage suffers. They start having marital conflict. They're... Their eldest born son murders their second born. Uh, and as we progress through Genesis, we find story after story after story of this disease of sin disregarding God's rule and his reign. And along comes this man named Abram. We know him as Abraham. Uh, he's this pagan sun and moon worshiper from the land of Ur, which is sort of in Babylon, which is modern day uh, Saudi Arabia or Iraq. And God calls to him, and he says in Genesis chapter 12, he says basically, hey, Abraham, I want you to take... I'm going to reset this thing here. Hold on a second. Abraham, I want you to take your family, and I want you to go to this land of Canaan that you don't know until I tell you to stop. And I'm going to bless you, 
and I'm going to make your, your, your family fruitful. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. Uh, kings are going to come from you. Nations are going to come through you. Those who, who curse you, I'm going to curse. And uh, those who bless you, I am going to bless. And the problem was that Abraham was nearly 100 years old. His wife was nearly 90, and he had yet to have a child yet. And, and though this man Abraham was not a perfect guy, uh, this belief and this trust in the Lord, Genesis 15, 6 says that it was his belief uh, that was credited to him as righteousness. And indeed, God made good on this promise. Uh, Abraham had a son who had a son named Jacob. Uh, and it's there that we see this, this, this uh, nation of Abraham start expanding. Genesis 37 through 50 tells us the story of all of Jacob's children. And it's about as dysfunctional as it gets, but they've multiplied greatly. But yet they're living in the land of Egypt. And as time passes, God... God's promise to Abraham becomes real, and so they're, they're so populous that Pharaoh gets threatened by this large nation in his land, and he, he makes them into slaves and, and puts them into harsh labor, and God sees their suffering, and he, uh, he judges uh, Egypt and takes them out of captivity by sending ten plagues and by parting the Red Sea so that God's people could go through dry land, and, and, and Pharaoh's army would be in, enclosed in the waves of the Red Sea being crashed down on him. Exodus 7.5 tells us that this was not only to bring the Israelites into the land, but also so that the Egyptians, meaning the world, will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and will bring out the Israelites from among them. Through disobedience, they, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and, and until they finally enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua and under the sovereign hands of God, they overtake their enemies and, and, and go into the land of Canaan and all the tribes are, are given uh, an allotted plot of land and the promise to Abraham 400 years uh, prior to that had finally come to fruition. God made good on his promise, his people in their land. He is their God. This is a big deal. And just before he died, uh, and, and having accomplished all of these things, Joshua has this exchange with, with the Israelites. It says, therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and in truth. Get rid of the gods of your ancestors that they worship beyond the Euphrates and in, the, in, in Egypt and worship the Lord. But if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose today who you're going to worship. Will you worship the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living? As for me and my family, we'll worship the Lord. And the people replied, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. For the Lord our God brought us out and our ancestors out of the land of Egypt and out of the place of slavery and performed these great signs before our eyes. He also protected us Along the way that we went among all the peoples whose lands we traveled through, the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We too will worship the Lord because he is our God. But as so often happens, we've seen it in our own lives, that spiritual high, it doesn't last for very long. Only a generation later, without a national leader, the people of Israel take things into their own hands. They reject God as their king. 
and as their redeemer and as their deliverer. And they began to adopt the cultic practices of all the nations that are uh, around them. And, and anarchy, moral anarchy ensues. And then there's a vicious cycle begins uh, called the judges period. They sin against the Lord and the Lord brings their enemies to overtake them and they end up becoming uh, enslaved by their enemies and they call out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a judge and this isn't like Judge Wapner with, with Rusty at his side. This judge is a deliverer. He goes out and he overtakes Israel's enemies so that they can be restored to God. And indeed this happens. Uh, but once they're restored, they sin again. Another nation overtakes them. They call out to the Lord. Another judge comes. And on and on the cycle goes. But as the cycle goes, it gets wider and wider and their disobedience gets bigger and bigger. When in the beginning of the book of Judges, their national sin simply is to not trust in the Lord uh, as their, their king and their Lord who would fight for them. The end of the book of Judges shows us a Levite who slices up his concubine into 10 pieces and sends it out to all the land of Israel, thus ensuing a civil war. Judges ends by telling us the reason for this mess that they were in. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. This is the world that Samuel was born into. And with all of that attention on the national sins of a people who were meant to display the goodness of God to a watching world, the story narrows now into a small, tiny family. First Samuel 1 Samuel 1-3 tells us, uh, 1 through 3 tells us that there was a man from Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham. Son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The first name was Hannah. The second was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town year, uh, every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's spies, or Lord's spies, Lord's priests. I was saying in Sunday school today that my brain is just not with me today. Apparently my eyes aren't either. So in a world where everyone does their own thing, where there is no law, there is no protection, there's no leadership, there's essentially no God, this family of Elkanah takes center stage. He has two wives, which we'll see next week presents certain issues, as you would, would guess. Uh, the, one of them is barren. And the second one, who was probably brought along in order to produce children, is, is very fruitful. And Hannah, in much torment, uh, ends up pleading with the Lord, saying, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me. And give your servant a son, and I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and his hair will never be cut. The Lord hears her request, and she bears a son named Samuel. Soon this boy ends up uh, in uh, not her care, though. Though she wanted this boy so much, she gives him up to the service of the Lord. She has him live at the temple. 
And soon he, he ends up hearing the voice of the Lord calling to him, something that hadn't happened in a really long time. He immediately is recognized as a man of God. And while he is learning obedience to the Lord, the disobedience of Israel has, has reached its pinnacle. It is at its very height. They try to manipulate God by taking the Ark of the Covenant into the battle with the Philistines. Believing that if the ark of God, which is said to be where God lived, would go into battle, then they were for sure to win. Well, God made them lose, and he made them lose miserably. And the ark is stolen from Israel and brought into the Philistine camp. This is about as worse as it gets. If you're talking about uh, how bad this is for Israel, this isn't a five-alarm fire. This is a ten-alarm fire. This is the worst thing that could happen to them. God has left them and has left their land. But while all this is happening, God is raising up Samuel to be a man who is dedicated to hearing and speaking and obeying God's word. And even when uh, the entire nation is coming to him and asking him for the thing that they shouldn't, a human king to rule over him, Samuel le listens to God in chapter 8, verse 22. And finds them a king. And it would be to Israel's judgment. Now I wonder. If you've ever considered the fact. That God may give you what you want. And what you pray for. As a means by which he disciplines us. Because we see that happening here. And as we go through this. It will be exactly what happens. Or I wonder if you've considered the fact. That God may call you to obey regardless of what your preconceived notion to do is. He may call you to obey when you don't want to. And Samuel's obedience here would be challenged in chapter 16 when he is asked to anoint a second king. And if he gets caught doing this, it could mean his life. Further, he is tasked to find one that the world wouldn't see as impressive. He wouldn't find the tallest and the smartest and, 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 and the best looking or the most eloquent. He would anoint the runt of the litter. Samuel would go on to challenge uh, King Saul directly for his acts of self-sufficiency, which is tantamount to treason. Yet in every one of these actions, Samuel's faith is fueled by his fierce commitment to obeying God's word. And it leads us to consider, what length would you go to to be in obedience to the call and word of God? What lengths would you go to? Are you ready at any point to stand up for the faith once delivered to the saints in spite of everything that a culture that has no king that does what is right in its own sight tells you? Take it from Samuel. A life of obedience is worth living. So we see that in Samuel. And then when we later in the story see the first king anointed, his name is Saul. And in Saul's life, we find that we need to resist self-reliance. We ought to resist self-reliance. If Samuel is a story of obedience, the story of Saul is a tragic story of self-obedience or self-reliance. 
Immediately after God gives permission for a king, Samuel, Samuel is the lone member on a, a search committee. And he is out to find the king. And by all accounts, this guy named Saul, he has the resume to be the king. He looks like a king. Look what it says in chapter 9, verse 2. It says that Saul was an impressive young man. There was no more impressive among the Israelites. He stood a head taller than everyone. Now, uh, there was a study that was done a number of years ago on election psychology. And what they found out was that in both America and other democratically elected countries, more often than not, the candidate that is chosen is not chosen based on his political party or the platforms that he or she uh, stands on, but rather, by and large, people are elected who are the taller and who have the lower voice. Because we are attracted to leadership that seems promising. And uh, Saul here is no different. He was tall, he was handsome, he looked the part, and I would have loved to have heard his voice because he probably had that kingly voice as well to lead people into battle and to make them get behind him. And at his inauguration, Samuel said to all the people, again in chapter 10, verse 24, do you see the one that the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among the total population. Yeah, he is the one. And all the people shouted, long live the king. They're behind this guy based on his appearance. And Saul initially had the, the personality of the kind of guy that you wanted in charge. He was uh, seemingly humble. At his inauguration, Samuel calls out Saul's tribe. And he says, where is this one that I have anointed? And it turns out that Saul is actually hiding. He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be the one uh, shown as, uh, as the king. We see that in uh, uh, chapter, chapter 10 and, and following. Further, Saul was victorious. Remember again that this is the end of the period of the judges. Those individuals who God had raised up to defeat Israel's enemies. And immediately after his, his inauguration, uh, the people of Jabesh Gilead are threatened. Like to the, to the extent of saying, hey, if you don't get back up, we're going to tear out all of your eyeballs and it's going to be really brutal for you. And Saul gets some people together, and he completely annihilates the Ammonites. And now if you're an Israelite, hey, this is looking pretty good. We got this guy that we just got as a king. He's the one that's taller. He's more handsome than anybody else in Israel. And guess what? He is destroying our enemies. Everything is going according to plan. But it doesn't take long for, uh, for this newfound glory to go to Saul's head. In chapter 11 uh, is the high point of Saul. And for the next 40 years, it's a slow decline. He tends to reshape God's word to fit his own agenda. In chapter 13, he is straight up disobedient, whereas he was supposed to wait for Samuel to offer up the sacrifice to God so that they would be victorious in battle. Saul is impatient, and he takes up the sacrifice, which is only meant for priests to do upon himself. After that incident in chapter 13, Samuel said to Saul, You have been foolish. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God has given you. 
It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be a ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. And that would not stop Saul by any means. In chapter 15, he refuses to obey the clear call of God to wipe out all the Amalekites, even their livestock. And when he is caught doing that, he is more concerned with how he looks to people than how he looks to God. Uh, look in uh, 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 Saul confirming what he says uh, two chapters prior. He says, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And defiance is the, like the wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as a king. So then this self, uh, this incident would shape the paranoid, self-preserving pattern of Saul. Especially in his raging jealousy of David. Have you ever wondered... If this self-preserving attitude is alive and well in your own spirit, have you ever wondered if Americanism runs through your veins more than it should? And what I mean by that is, are you infected with the ideal of individualism in which self-reliance is the chief virtue? Are you really good at justifying yourself whenever you are confronted? Are you ready and willing to make excuses for your life, your behavior, or maybe even your attitude if it keeps the view of yourself towards others and the, your own view of yourself positive? Are you aware that such self-philosophies run counter to God who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble? Are you aware that your self-sufficiency will not deliver you out of sin and death, but will rather drive you there? Are you aware that... that that God in his, in his patience has kindness. All of these years of you putting him and his pur purpose on the back burner. Friend, there is a way out. This, though Saul, king of Israel, failed just like you and I do every single day, there would be a king who would not fail. There would be a king who was coming that would not only live for others, but would die for others. This king's name is Jesus, and in his life, he was fully obedient to the Lord. He paid the price that we deserved for our self-reliance, and in his resurrection, and now in his ascension, he is giving us the power and the ability through his Holy Spirit to turn from our self-reliance and to turn to a God-reliance. Friends, I encourage you to trust in this Jesus who makes David's out of Saul's. Resist self-reliance and trust in the one, Jesus Christ, the true king. And third and finally, we look at David. And in David, we're instructed to rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. So whereas Saul was, was, was infatuated with uh, the man in the mirror, 
the rising star in the book of 1 Samuel is absolutely smitten with the Lord. The contrast is stark. Saul could, own, could rightly be described as a man after his own personal heart, but yet David is described in chapter 13, verse 14, as a man after God's own heart. Whereas Saul, a man who was concerned with his own reputation, David was a man that was concerned with God's reputation. David was obsessed with this, and, and, and it most famously is shown in, in the encounter with Goliath, the Philistine giant. David was sent to the battlefield by his father simply to bring his brothers their lunchboxes. And he sees this giant who is saying things against Israel. And he responds and comes away as a victorious war warrior. He says here in chapter 17, verse 26, just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So because of his obedience and his trust in the Lord, he had what we would call the Midas touch. Everything that David does turns to uh, proverbial, proverbial, proverbial gold. I can't talk, I can't read, I can't do anything today. His victory over Goliath was famous. His country began a national anthem in which the lyric said this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. How do you think that goes over with a king who is obsessed with himself? Not real well. Saul puts a hit on David, and for the rest of the book, David is fleeing from Samuel, but the Lord is with David. He has two opportunities to assassinate King Saul, and he doesn't take it because he, is, he fears the Lord and would not put his hands on the Lord's anointed Saul at that point. Instead, he writes songs, what we know as the Psalms, of the beauty of the Lord and the goodness of God in light of very difficult and hard circumstances. It's no wonder that David is heralded as the greatest king of Israel. The logo that you see associated with, uh, with uh, Jewish folks, that, that, uh, that star with the triangles, it's known as the Star of David because they still look to him as the greatest king. He certainly wasn't perfect, as we'll see, but he is venerated for a good reason. And if we were to look at these accounts of David as encouragement to live a higher moral life who does what's right and rejects what's wrong, if we look at the stories like that, we'd be wrong. That's not what the life of David here is about. These accounts are not meant for us to try harder. They are meant to point us to the goodness and the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. David was a great leader. He was anointed by God to be the greatest king that Israel saw in their monarchy. But David could not deliver his people from their sins. He couldn't even deliver himself. In fact, some of his sins, one sin in particular, would ruin his family life for generations. Rather, his passion for God was pointing to the one king anointed by God who could deliver his people and all of us 
from our sins. It was pointing to the one who would transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He was pointing us to the one in whom Matthew chapter 1 would tell us is not only the, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, but he was also the fulfillment of David's kingship, which was given to him in 2 Samuel 7. This Jesus of Nazareth, the rightful king from the lineage of David. It is through this king's work that we are made right. It is through this king's work that we are made whole again. It is through this king's work that we find not a tyrant, but a king who gives himself up for the better and the goodness of his subjects. He's a gentle king who lived and died and lives again for those who would trust in him. Friends, there is a transition available for you right now. A transition from death to life. And regardless of whatever you're facing today, whether it's your, your, your personal things that you got going on or the geopolitical uh, things that the world may bring, there is hope. There's purpose, there's meaning, there's joy, there's redemption, there's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's salvation found in this king who will transfer you into his kingdom. And it is received by faith. That is the message of 1 Samuel. Will you put your faith, not in fallible kings, who will let you down, but solely in the king who, is, who has come and is coming again, King Jesus of Nazareth, the righteous one. Let's pray.